Boy, I had something I wanted to say. It is in the back of my mind or the tip of my tongue or wherever ideas live when we can't quite remember what we were going to say. Um, thank you to everybody who worked to, uh, to make our children's presentation possible. Thank you for doing that. Um, we're going to read and, uh, and, and we're going to turn uh, to, to God's word uh, for an extended time of, uh, of study after we read and pray. Let's read together, um, all looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, reading the first 10 verses. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together as we turn to this text this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness toward us. Father, if there were no grace, no love, no mercy in your character, there would never be a reason to set up a tree, to decorate it with lights, to sing songs, and to enjoy one another. Instead, it would be perfectly appropriate to sit in fear each and every day waiting for your coming judgment. Because, Father, as the Scripture says, we are dead in sins and trespasses, and we are by our very nature, by who we are as human beings, we are deserving of your wrath. But the Scriptures say in verse 4, But God. And we thank you that those two words are there. Father, we pray as we come to this text this morning, as we consider a subject that we have considered over and over again through our lives in our culture. Father, whether we are 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 or 70, we have celebrated that many Christmases and we have heard tales, stories, we've seen pictures and heard scriptures read about the birth of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be conscious 
of the true meaning of Christmas. And that we would keep it on our hearts and minds as we celebrate this week and as we encounter those who we know who may not know you. Those who may know of you but not be in fellowship with you. We pray, Father, that we would have this true meaning, this true sense, this true idea. Not just that Christmas is the birth of a baby or that the birth of a child brings the promise of new life or that the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of giving or that the warm feelings that we feel in the cold season should help us to make that spirit last all year. Instead, I pray that we would see Christmas as Jesus robing himself in flesh, that he might go to the cross and pay for our sins, that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. We thank you, Father, for your word, which brings clarity and purity to everything. We pray that as we hear, Father, that you would speak to us. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we come to our text, um, either by good planning or uh, by the grace of God, I I think it's a good degree of both, uh, probably a greater degree of the grace of God, we come to this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, which I think is not a typical passage for Christmas, but is a perfect passage for Christmas. This passage before us challenges our conceptions of Christmas. Have you noticed as you drive around town or as you walk through the mall or as you shop online or as you um, go to the Christian bookstore, as you, as you look at billboards, have you noticed how much, how close we get to Christmas without actually discussing what Christmas is about? Have you noticed that there are billboards around town? And I'm not, I, I want to I be sure that you, that you understand I'm not criticizing them. I'm not, I'm not saying anybody's doing anything wrong. I'm just, there is a, a pattern in our life to, to want to say things or to communicate ideas about Christmas that are close to Christmas without actually getting into it, right? There, do billboards in a second. There's a, there's a phenomenon going on in our culture right now. There's the happy holidays phenomenon, right? And then there's, yes, down with happy holidays. Um, but then there's the, the subversive or the overt attack of saying, Merry Christmas. Have you noticed this? And, and there are times, and I want you to hear that I'm not saying anybody's doing anything wrong here, okay? There may be, but maybe the attitude, I, I, I'm at Lowe's and I'm shopping and I'm buying light bulbs. This is a fictitious story. This did not actually happen, okay? I'm, I'm, and I go to the checkout counter and the guy or girl, it's fictitious, I'm making it up, is standing there checking out my light bulbs, and I swipe my card and I put them in my bag, and they say, happy holidays, and I say, Merry Christmas! Right? As if to insist on sharing one kind of greeting conveys the message with which we all have to do. Does does that make sense? 
Sharing a particular greeting, if the words don't convey content, if there's not an idea behind them, it doesn't matter whether people say Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas at all. The billboards that are up around town, and, and I like them and appreciate them, they say, wise men still seek him. Somebody who has no conception of Christianity could drive by that and say, what does that mean? And have no sense of the real meaning of Christmas. Behold, a child is born. What does that mean? For Christians, for those who believe the gospel, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he understood that Christmas, the coming of Jesus, Jesus taking on flesh, becoming incarnate, laying aside his robe of glory and his divine prerogatives and wrapping human frailty around himself. Christmas was written into the biography of each and every believer. Christmas is not something that happened a long, long time ago in a spiritual sense. In a historical sense, 2,000 years ago, there were shepherds. There were wise men. There was a woman who gave birth to a very real baby in Bethlehem. And he was born. But this enrobing with flesh that Jesus did when he was born, when Jesus entered the world, he spiritually entered the life of every human being. And every believer. Christmas takes into account the birth, the life of Jesus, and his journey to the cross. His suffering death and his resurrection and ascension. Paul's intent as he writes this this book, Ephesians, is that we would know God and worship him and delight in the work which he has done on our behalf and enjoy him. Paul reviews in the first um, 14 verses all of the salvation blessings that we have. And then he presents to us three knowledges, the, the hope to which we've been called, the glorious riches that God counts toward himself in the saints. And then he prays that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power. But then he moves to our biography in verses 2 through 10. Sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And he presents us with a massive problem. And that is our problem. God has done all these things. God possesses beautiful, wonderful, loving character toward us. But we have a tremendous problem, and that is we are, through our sins and our trespasses, spiritually dead before him. And by our very nature, we deserve his wrath. And so Christmas enters into our biography here. The cross factors in at Christmas. Now, I don't want to be down on cuteness at Christmas, because Christmas and tenderness, Christmas and nostalgia, Christmas and decoration and celebration go together, but Christmas is more than cuteness. It's not just celebrating and peering at a baby. Christmas is not 
Christianity's version of celebrating the birth of our great teacher. It's not like our version of President's Day, where we celebrate the birth of a good man who did great things. Christmas is the celebration of the coming of the one who would deliver us from our own sinful condition and therefore deliver us from the righteous wrath of God. My intent this morning, as I draw our attention to this, is not to put you on a guilt trip, okay? But as I said last week, the more keenly that we feel our need for a Savior, the more precious will be the coming of that Savior. We cannot know the beauty of a Savior unless we know the hopelessness of our condition. It is one thing to love and to respect the men who come and put out fires. It is another thing to have been through a fire yourself and to know what it's like to be delivered. When we have an appreciation for who we are, we'll have an appreciation for what he has done. So this morning, I'd like to walk us through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and, and analyze and see three main ideas. The first is what I would call the motive of Christmas. We'll see that in verses 4 through 5. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last week as we saw our spiritual condition. The, the second, the, the first is the motive, verses 4 through 5. Uh, the second is the method of Christmas, verses 5 through 6. And then in verse 7, we will see the mission of Christmas. And that will deliver us to the doorstep of our passage for next week, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So let's look at the motive, the method, and the mission of Christmas. The motive of Christmas. Why does Jesus take on flesh? Look at verse 4. After describing our spiritual condition as dead in sins and trespasses, by nature children deserving of God's wrath, in verse 4, the scripture says, but God, but God. One commentator calls these quite possibly the most happy words ever written in any language, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who are we by nature as people? We are unworthy of mercy. We are undeserving of God's affection. But we see here that the motive the operating force which causes God to send his Son, God the Father sending God the Son to take on human flesh to save us. The motive comes from the very deep heart of God, and it is God's rich mercy and his great love toward us that moves him to make us alive. This passage tells us something about the deep heart of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Many of us have this image of God as being dour and miserable and angry and bitter and, and just not the kind of person that you'd like to spend lots of time with, right? I think in part we get this image, maybe, from our, from our parents, right? 
Um, every now and again, you'll run into someone who, who tells you that their parents always said, God's going to punish you if you do that, right? You know, maybe we pick it up there. Um, but maybe, maybe because there are rules that come from God is one of the reasons why we think of him as sour and mean and bitter. I think part of this comes because whenever somebody restrains our freedom, we, we naturally resent them a little bit because they're not letting us do everything that we want to do all the time. I mean, my mom and my dad were very sour and angry and bitter about a lot of things like playing in the street. I was never allowed to do this as a kid, you know? I'd want to be out in the road, be like sitting there. My own children do this, and what do I do? I open the front door and I say, get out of the road now! The nerve, you know, and it's like, why? There's no cars. I'm very sour and bitter and angry about boiling water on the stove. You know, we've got an electric stove, we've got this little light that's as hot, you know? Take the boiling water, pour it to make some tea, put the, put the pot back down, the little light's on, but it doesn't look hot. My kid will go over there and go, to, and I'm like, ah! Get your hand away. You're so mean and oppressive. We're very serious, too, in our house about running with sharp things, right? <laughs> we think so often that because God says, live this way, here are my commandments, do these things, live this way, we think that he's sour and bitter and angry at us. But this text corrects that. Yes, God is just and righteous, and he does all things well, and he does all things right, and he lays down rules for our living. And he says, live this way and not that way. This is the right way to live. I command you to live this way. I command you not to live that way. Yes, that's true. Talk about that just a little bit more in a second. But he is also rich in mercy. He loves us with great love. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. He's speaking to Israel here who had disobeyed and disobeyed for years and years and years and God had sent them prophets and he had sent them warnings and he had sent them messages and they refused to follow and listen and repent and obey. And God says, it's not because you're so good that I'm showing you affection. I'm showing you faithfulness because I love you. Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 through 9, show this dilemma. As God is moving the nation towards destruction, the nation of Israel, he has told them over and over again, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to teach you that you cannot behave this way. I'm going to bring my wrath upon you. He also says, in the midst of that message, he says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. Don't worry. But, but, but feel the dilemma as, as God says this. He's speaking to the tribes, and he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Understand that those Adma, Zeboim, those are places that God had destroyed in his wrath. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning wrath. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
God's love. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. And so we ought to understand that his love is powerful. It's great. It is, as Paul describes it, a super love. Okay? He uses this word here in this verse. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's, it's the Greek word which we might translate today. We might use the word super, which would be okay. It's, a, it's an exceedingly great love. It's greater than most love. It's greater than any love. The image that works in my mind, I, I work in mental pictures, is this, of a, of a child coming with a cup and saying, could I have a glass of water? And as the, as the glass is held out, water just pours out from everywhere, like a monsoon coming down all over. Child now, completely soaked, completely drenched, completely wet, holding a full cup of water that's dripping, like a, like a flavor explosion, you know, just insane amounts of what that child asked for. That's the way God's love worked. It is over the way it works. It's more abundant, more exceeding than we can possibly imagine. Let me defend this use of this word. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Same word. Where God's law pointed out the sinfulness of humanity, God's grace superabounded. We sin, God shows more grace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Are you in overwhelming circumstances? Are you in a circumstance that you cannot deal with? Uh, you, are, you are not feeling peace. Why aren't you feeling peace? Because you understand your circumstances. God's peace is super peace. It exceeds our understanding of our circumstances. 1 Timothy 1.14, again, back to grace. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, Paul says, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says this is a faithful and trustworthy statement just a few lines later where he says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Where sin exists, God's love overflows. His love is a super love. It is more overpowering than any love we have ever felt, than any joy we have ever felt. And it moves him to save. We come to now something that I think we could call the divine dilemma. This is the, the problem, and it's not a problem because it is solved instantly, but this is the, the problem that is placed before us over and over again in Scripture. God, a righteous and holy God, deals with continuous offenses against his purity and his decency and his holiness each and every day from us, because we sin, don't we, in word and thought and deed. We hate what God loves, and we love so often what God hates. And moving beyond that, there are times when we do the right thing, but we do it with the wrong attitude. 
right? Or we understand the right thing that we do and we really, really feel like we should do it and we don't do it. I mean, we just, we mess up in so many different ways. And God bears all of these offenses against himself constantly. And this is a mess that we cannot clean up because God is righteous and holy. And no sin, no sin, not the smallest, not the biggest, goes unpunished. Listen, Numbers 14, 18 puts this in what I think we could call the Old Testament sense of God's holiness and love. Listen, Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That sounds good. It is good. He forgives iniquity and transgression. That sounds good too. But here comes some bad news. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the, of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. God is merciful and loving and kind and compassionate. But what he's saying here is at some point, all sin needs to be punished. He's loving, and he's holy. And so we have what theologians have called the divine dilemma. What does he do? He sends his son to live a perfect life. Jesus takes on perfect human flesh and lives a life of perfect obedience so that in each and every moment of his life, there is nothing but a life that delights God the Father. God the Father sits up in heaven and looks down on his Son and sees his Son embrace every moment with joy and delight, living the right way for God's glory. And then God takes his perfect Son and places him on the cross through the hands of wicked men crushes him, puts him to death. An unjust death for a perfectly just and righteous person. Why does he do that? Because every time we loved something that God hated, and every time we hated something that God loves, and every time we did the right thing with the wrong attitude or the wrong thing with the right attitude or we justified ourselves and, and puffed up our rights. God could take that perfectly righteous life if we believe, if we trust in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. God takes that righteous life and he applies it to ours. Do you understand the freeing power of the righteousness of Christ in your life? Do you understand what that means, what a gift that is? That means if you live a perfect life, you make it to 99 and you have been stellar and wonderful and awesome every moment of your life and you do one sin sinful thing, you lose heaven. But that's not the way it is, is it? The righteousness of Christ applied to that moment makes that man perfect. But now listen, that man has his nature working against him. He is by nature a sinner, by nature deserving of wrath. And he has messed up many, 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 many times in his life. But God's righteousness and grace cover each and every moment. It becomes possible for God to be just and to punish all sin in Christ and yet make those he loves righteous for all time. 
And all we need to do is believe that that is true and follow him. And that faith, put in the work of Christ, results in a new life being placed in. Let's talk about the method of Christmas. The method is union with Christ. Look at verse 5. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, speaking of God, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the method of Christmas? It is God's grace on our behalf. And I'm going to talk a lot about this next week, so I'm just going to, I'm going to briefly cover it. Verse 5 teaches us that all that we are spiritually, we owe to God. You are spiritually alive because God made you alive. If you've believed in his grace, it is only because God made you alive through the death of his son, through his love. Think of your mom and your dad. You play no part in your own existence, do you? You exist because your mom and dad fell in love. You play no part in creating yourself. It's purely grace that you exist. It's that same grace that we become to exist spiritually, God's grace. But it goes beyond that. We're saved by grace, yes. We'll talk more about that next week. God, taking Christ, who lived this perfect life, he unites us spiritually with him. Notice what it says. It says that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus becomes alive in the flesh. He becomes a spirit a human being in the flesh so that we might become alive in spirit. You see, what is being said here is that what happens to Jesus has an effect upon us. Jesus says in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. What he's saying here is that when Jesus lived a perfect life, When he went to the cross, he was condemned, crucified, buried, raised, made alive spiritually. He ascended to heaven and is seated there on the throne, crowned for all eternity. The same things are true of us spiritually. There's a connection between the physical and the spiritual. Now, I'll tell you, I racked my brain to come up with a way of of representing this to you. How do, I, how do I communicate that what happened to Jesus physically happens to us spiritually? And I think the only connection I can make is the connection between the mouse and the keyboard and the computer, the electronic world. I sit for a good portion of the week behind a computer and I, 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 I mash these endless repetitions of keys, right? You know, and you move the mouse. And nothing's happening in the real world, is it? I mean, I'm just, I'm sitting there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not making anything. But every time I press a set of combinations of letters, words appear and begin to fill up documents on the screen. And suddenly I'm sending emails and clicking buttons, right? And, and accomplishing something. It's, it's not real, 
It's all electronic. It's happening on the inside of the computer. Does that make sense? I don't know how computers work. Just plug stuff together and type. But here's what's happening in the physical and the spiritual world. There is a connection between the physical Christ who comes and dies physically and is raised physically and ascends physically to those who are alive in some sense physically and yet are dead spiritually. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses and we cannot please God. But what God does for Christ physically, he does for us spiritually and will one day do for us physically. Does that make sense? It's a connection between the mouse. Shake your head. No, it doesn't work. Anyway, um, everything that God does physically for Christ, he does for us spiritually. He raises us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 say this. If then you have been raised with Christ... And if you trust in God's grace to you in the cross, you have been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where are you right now if you're a believer? Is your life here that someone could take away? No, it's safe and secure for all time in heaven. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you can have it by saying, God, I am a sinner. I trust in the work of Christ on the cross. Place your spirit within me and give me life, and he will. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this, that our citizenship is not here on the earth. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is from heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your life primarily here on earth? No. Your life is in heaven. God has raised you up. The Bible says that he has seated us on the throne next to Christ. My phone is making noise. God has raised us, seated us next to Christ. We are united with him, even though we do not physically feel like that is true. Revelation 3.21. Jesus says, The one who conquers, the one who perseveres in faith, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. There is a coming day when these things will be physically true of us, but they are true spiritually of us now. Now, Ephesians was written to a culture that was highly superstitious, very much focused on otherworldly spirits and demons and magic. That's the way their culture worked. Imagine what great comfort this must have been to them, that they were spiritually secured forever, delivered, raised up, seated on the throne with Christ, the throne of the greatest king that has ever been or ever will be. They are secure for all time. Nothing can remove them from fellowship with God. Nothing can assault their life. Now ask yourself, what circumstance 
is there in your life that is not remedied by this truth? You're having financial hard times. You're secure. Nobody can take away your life. You are tempted with sins. There are times when you fail. You fail miserably. And you feel like, how could God love me? You're secure. Seated on the throne. You spend your whole life working out guilt for things you've done in the past. You're secure. Stop it. God loves you. And he's placed you on the throne next to Christ. And that is a gift of his grace. The gift of Christmas. God is rich in mercy. I'm just going to, I'm going to close down and pick up verse 7 next week and talk about God's mission or his intent in sending his son. Um, But let me finish it this way. There are so many things that we try to do so that we can earn the blessings that we believe God has promised us. Does that make sense? There there are many things that we try to to do to earn the blessings, right? I'm going to give more. I'm not going to curse anymore. I'm not going to... um, I'm not, I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm not going to, um, you know, uh, 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 steal things. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, be grouchy. I'm going to be kinder towards my children. I'm going to love my spouse more. I'm going to do all these things. And then maybe God, maybe he'll, he'll love me. Maybe he'll treat me kindly. Maybe my life situation will improve. Maybe then I'll begin to reap the blessings of heaven. It's not the way it works. This is the way it works. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And that is all true. And we don't have to do anything to make it happen. And he's never going to take it away. That should move us to gratitude. That should move us to live lives where we battle sin and try to get it out of our lives and and, and throw it away. We don't throw sin away to earn God's favor. We throw it away because he has shown us favor. And that is a gift. A gift that only can come when Jesus takes on flesh for us and dies in our place. Let's close in prayer as as we finish off this morning. Father, I thank you for your message from this word. And I pray, Father, for each and every one of us here today. Father, I pray for those who are here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Those who do not acknowledge or perhaps are just growing in a sense of their need for you. And Father, I pray for each person in the room who does not know you, that they would trust in your righteousness, in your grace, in your kindness, in your mercy, in your love as the source of their salvation and not their deeds. Father, we live righteously because you have shown kindness to us, not the other way around. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that they would thank you for your gift 
and receive it in gratitude. And then I pray that they would come and talk to me or seek someone out and share with them that they have trusted you this morning. Father, I pray for those here who are going through hard times and feel perhaps like you are punishing them. If you are, it's only to wean out a love for the world or an element of character which needs to go. It's not evidence of your lack of love. So I pray that they would see themselves seated on the throne. Father, for those who feel like their sins are too great, I pray that you would show them one, that that's not true. And two, two, that to deny that having trusted in salvation, that you have not given the reward that you promised, that is to call you a liar. And in the greatest amount of love, which I can muster, I would say that is a sin that they should repent of gladly. Father, I pray that each and every person here, as they see pictures of your son born on Christmas, that they would see a beautiful Savior come to earth, wrapping himself in flesh to save by your grace and for your glory. Father, may we delight in the work that you've done on our behalf. May we delight in the righteousness that we can have from Christ. May we delight in deliverance from sins and righteousness forever, seated with you on your throne. We thank you for the deliverance that comes only through Jesus, and we pray that we would celebrate that each and every day this holiday season and every day beyond. We thank you. We love you. We pray your blessing on us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.